Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hi, everybody. It's Oliver Chen. I'm Cowan's retail and luxury analyst. This is our third episode of our retail and luxury podcast series, and we'll be continuing on the topic of re-commerce and resale today, as I am thrilled to be hosting Julie Wainwright, the founder and CEO of The Real Real, a leading third-party resale marketplace that focuses distinctly on luxury goods. This is a visionary series about visionary ideas, and Julie, thanks so much for joining us today. You're both the CEO and founder, and I'm sure you've seen a lot since founding the public company uh, where you are today is very impressive. I'd love to kick off our conversation with your story and vision for starting The Real Real. And what is The Real Real for people who have never heard about it? Well, we are an online and now offline authenticated luxury consignment business. Right now, we're only domestic. We're only in the U.S. and uh, we're public. Why and how did you start this? And what is your customer base like? So originally I was looking for, did, I really love e-commerce. I really love marketplaces and I was looking for opportunities. So this is in the idea of formation. And my first thing I did was map out what Amazon's good at and what they're not good at, because especially if I was going to go in the e-commerce space, I had all these wonderful, you know, quadrant maps. I had no ideas. And then like any good little idea, when I was shopping with a girlfriend, I did go into a boutique, a luxury boutique that had consignment in the back. And that's what was keeping that boutique alive. And that's where my friend shopped. I had never seen her shop any consignment store. And when we left the store, I started grilling her and like, I've never seen you buy consignment. She said, who cares? I got Chanel and Gucci and Louis Vuitton at a great price and they're beautifully, they're gently worn. It's a beautiful store. Would you ever go in a consignment store? No, I hate them. <laughs> Yet she just bought consignment. Would you ever shop on eBay? No, too many fakes. I don't want to go back and forth with the sellers. I just want the product. And all of a sudden a light bulb went on and I spent about the next six to eight weeks researching both the luxury market, the installed base of luxury goods by country which there were some good, there were good McKinsey reports out, there's some Bain reports out, trying to understand how much volume eBay was doing. Very hard to determine, but clearly they were leaving a lot of opportunity. Also looked at that time, there were only pawn shops for fine jewelry. So went and uh, experienced a pawn shop experience and uh, looked at watches and where you could buy and sell watches. And I even called up the galleries where I'd bought some art and asked if they would take it back and resell it. And they sort of laughed at me. So I kept thinking, this is a huge opportunity and it's a white space that no one is playing in. And it's going to require a different way of doing business though. For every person I talked to about consigning, they said it was really hard. And I tried to consign, consign in brick and mortar stores. I consigned online i like i said i took my tools to a pawn shop which was really an undesirable to say the least and so i tried all these experiences and i thought we have to offer it a great service to consigners make it easy do all the work for them and literally come to your house to remove the goods because otherwise you have too much friction now we also offer drop-offs but that so that was the key thing 
to begin with. And then for the consumer, we had to authenticate. So from day one, we knew that, you know, selling fakes is not the business we wanted to be in. We were the first one to say authentication was important. And we started putting up guardrails for authentication and start learning actually about how to authenticate. We hired people that had been doing it for other businesses to get started. And, you know, you fast forward, that was 10 years ago, Oliver, and you fast forward now and we have an incredible library of knowledge and technology to support authentication. And we've offered more ways for the consigner to remove friction from store drop-offs, come to you, shipping label, and uh, during COVID, we really introduced virtual appointments with curbside pickup. So an yet another tool. Julie, what would you say are your core competencies or competitive advantages in the secret sauce has really made uh, this platform very successful? Well, there's so many. We are not a peer-to-peer. -peer. We're a consumer-to-business-to-consumer platform. So what that means is, unlike anyone else, we actually take the goods and authenticate them and then sh shoot the photograph. We use now really deep pricing algorithms to get optimal price. So we price it and we sell it and we pay you. So we do all the work in the luxury space. We have over a hundred gemologists and watch experts um, on staff along with other brand experts on staff. So, um, you know, we can, actually safely take from your art to your fine jewelry to your watches to your handbags and all apparel and other accessories in the luxury space and then ensure for the customer buying it that those items have been authenticated so we're the only one focused a in this segment of the market has the infrastructure in this segment of the market has a deep technology moat around our business that allows us to both move quickly but also expertly and processing the goods. So everyone else in the resale space has really gone more down market or single category focused. And we're a broad category, do all the work uh, business. And we were first. So yeah, that helps. We're a that one -stop helps. Shop, one stop shop with a high degree of service. I'm wearing clothes and jewelry and have art from the real, real. Um, so re-commerce at Cowan, I mean, we, we forecast it could reach 14% the apparel, footwear, and accessories market doubling and growing at 25% and higher. Julie, what are some of the broad drivers that are driving outsized growth in the, in the resale market from your perspective? I think there's a heightened awareness along by millennials and Gen Z of the importance of recirculating goods. We've certainly been waving that banner for a long time. And when I say importance, I mean as it implies to the envi positive environmental impact of recirculating goods. So um, everyone, you know, I think uh, even today, I, I may be misquoting him, but I think Joe Biden even said the planet's crying out. And uh, that is not lost on people who read or living on the planet, given the environmental changes we're going through. And then you combine that with the values of the millennials and Gen Zs, which really are more uh, environmentally sound values. So recirculating goods just makes sense. The fashion industry, sadly, is one of the biggest polluters. Some say the second largest polluter behind big oil in the world. And that has been driven by all of them with old supply chains, but fast fashion really accelerated that. And so people are starting to see the, the, 
downside of fast fashion and throwaway fashion when you get something like a truckload every minute of fashion ending up in a landfill. It's really unacceptable. So I'd say values are changing. And then also the wealth, you know, it's a smart thing to do. These are smart informed buyers and now consigners. And, and so consequently environmental impact plus intelligence of buying value has led to a different kind of shopper. That's not going away, in fact, it's gaining momentum. Sustainability is already at the forefront for consumers, increasingly one for investors. I really see you as a pioneer on the sustainability frontier with your carbon neutrality pledge by 2021 and other factors. What are the top priorities for sustainability and what's your advice to the industry at large as a leader in the industry? So, I mean, there's two different things for us for sustainability. We did put out a sustainability calculator years ago, so you can start measuring the impact of both consigning and buying resale. But we are looking at expanding the sustainability calculator to other businesses so they can measure the impact of resale. But we were the first to do that, and we really feel great about that. Internally, when we really took a hard look at our own internal practices, we had other things we had to work on. We had to work on our packaging to reduce that footprint. We had to work on our just the basic nature of our business. We ship things. So our shipping costs, how we ship, the vendors we work with, the values of those vendors, and their pledge to sustainability. And then um, although COVID sort of uh, helped us here, I think our single biggest net negative environmental impact was commuting. And certainly no one's going into the offices now because of COVID. But when we come back, we're going to put incentives in place for people to ride share where it's safe or go through alternative methods like riding your bike or you know uh, public transportation because commute the cost of uh, you know driving your own car by yourself in a gas car is really high. Billy, what do you think about the future of the retail industry and the broader uh, topic of sustainability as well as diversity and inclusion? Would love your thoughts on how it's shaping um, how you think about priorities and how the industry uh, should move as well. Well, we're a lot younger than most of the industry, so we can move faster. And certainly now being a public company, we could also take, start changing on our board to reflect more diversity. We have a very diverse workforce. Our board did not reflect uh, our employee population. So my focus in the last year, since we've gone public year and a half, is to, um, as people come off, to actually get a diver much more diverse Board and you're going to hear, be hearing about more of those people. But I would say pretty soon we're going to be over 60% women on the board and half of them, they're diverse women. So I'm really excited about that. That's, that is a big change in the way I believe our corporate governance will go too. We also changed the reporting structure for the sustainability actions in our company that now reports the person in charge of that reports directly to me. The board's holding me accountable for uh, sustainability metrics along with diversity metrics in the company and inclusion. So we're starting to measure what our words say. We're now measuring it at the board level. So I'm excited about that. The industry is a different story. It's gonna take a long time to reverse engineer their supply chains to be really sustainable. Sustainable fabrics are really hard. I think it's gonna be even harder now that COVID hit 
because they're going to be getting back to ground zero on their business before they can then add another thinking of sustainability. I'm hoping it doesn't pass doesn't push off sustainability for an incremental year or two as they regain their footing. It's pretty hard to put that front and center when your business may have gone dropped by 40 to 60%. What will really change things, there's two different things that will change things for the retail industry. One is if consumers really do spend their dollars where their values are, that's yet to be seen. It certainly isn't yet to be seen in the resale market, but that's also a value decision against buying goods. So that's got a, that combo. But if people start spending money against their values, that will, the retailers will get the message. But the single biggest thing that can happen are laws that actually both change the way businesses have to work, gives them an incentive to be more sustainable and a penalty if they don't. The EU is always taking the lead on this. I'm hoping they're strict for businesses that sell worldwide, and most do, and most of the luxury brands are based in Europe. When you start thinking of the guidelines they're gonna to have to follow, that will have a very positive impact on the, on the rest of the markets they sell into. If the US decides, if our country decides to start following some of the EU regulations, especially as it, as it pertains to fashion, and the goals, for instance, no more burning, no, you know, putting restrictions on landfill, giving them a date to hit different levels with uh, fabric that actually is sustainable or materials that are sustainable, then we could actually start seeing real change. I don't believe even under this new administration, we're going to see that happen quickly. And the fashion industry's done a very good job of keeping it quiet in terms of their level of, of contributing to a negative environmental impact. My goal isn't to raise awareness of the negative impact of the fashion industry, but to raise awareness of the positive immediate impact of recirculating goods. Because that's here and now, we don't have to wait for supply chain reinvention, the companies will do as they need to do, mostly for legal compliance. Yeah. But I, but I, am, well, I am trying to work to give work on a government level to give consumers an incentive, even if it's a small tax break, to consign. So if you just think about it, it's like, yes, prove that you consign. Maybe it's only $50 off your federal taxes, but it will get people thinking about it. It's changing their behavior, which I think will be incredibly positive. Yeah, there's many aspects from transparency to accountability to the geopolitical and to this idea of, of profits in purpose and consumers wanting to vote with their dollars because a lot of luxury is also emotional too, and, and that's an aspect. So another topic, Julie, is luxury going online. The luxury market has generally had a lower online penetration versus other parts of the retail market. And brands that RealReal has um, don't necessarily allocate a lot of capital towards scaling their own e-commerce capabilities. What's the opportunity here and what's happening with luxury going online? Well, you know, Ed, the COVID's really forced them to get online faster. I would say um, most brands have done that because otherwise they would have been down to zero sales for different months of the year this last year. But what, what you're not seeing 
is their full selection of products. You're not, you're, there's still some hesitancy, there's still some pullback where like, we still want you to come in the store. So they haven't, even the ones that are progressive haven't completely embraced it. The contemporary brands and the, you know, the more the mid luxury brands are doing some really interesting things and you'll see it. So I think of Stella as being a progressive luxury brand. Her price points aren't as crazy or crazy high as some of the, the top tier, but it, she's definitely not a contemporary brand. And Stella started releasing a lot of small collections all the time. So she's innovating all the time. When I say Stella, I mean Stella McCartney. She's always innovating. Uh, you see Gucci innovating with how they're creating, trying to create experiences online. And yet their full product selection isn't quite online. But, you know, people are doing more testing. I think they're embracing it. They're looking at how they present things. The first um, fashion show was virtual. Now there's talk that this year everyone's going to be back. And fashion weeks in Paris, Milan, and New York are going to go on as before. But I bet you there's going to be a combination of virtual and in-person because the environmental impact is huge of fashion week, negatively. And the value is yet to be seen. So I think people are going to figure, figure out how to find a better balance going forward. But you've got to give it to an industry that really was a laggard industry, how quickly they did uh, pop up and do some really great experimentation during this time. And I'm sure there's great learning for the whole fashion industry. Yeah, the experiential component, live streaming, culture, cooking, drinks with luxury brands. Uh, it, we've seen a lot of innovation quickly. And so I, I enjoy going to the Real Real stores, you, a really innovative format here in Soho in New York. And we are big believers at Callan of Bricks Meets Clicks. What about the real world stores and what you've been doing there? I know you've been testing new formats as well. And what, how do stores fit into your vision and ecosystem? Wow, we're so excited about this. So thanks for asking. This year, we really, last year and this year, we started committing to a new format. We're calling them core stores. Now you have one in New York and that's on Madison. And Madison is significantly smaller than our store in Soho, but it does, it's probably a third of the cost to operate. It has about a third of the SKUs, but it does about 80% of both uh, the revenue and also the consigned value coming in of the Soho store. So when you start looking at that footprint, what's unique about it? It's in a neighborhood. It's a convenience to the people there. Uh, we've been able to tailor, tailor the merchandise in the store to the neighborhood as closely as possible. And we thought, okay, we've got a great store in Soho, which does phenomenally well. We've got an amazing store in LA in West Hollywood, which we call WeHo. We did open another flag uh, ship store in Chicago, which uh, Michigan Avenue right <laughs> right before a winter hit, but it still is doing quite well, better than we thought during COVID times. Let's roll out more neighborhood stores. We think, uh, so we rolled out, we decided to do that in, uh, I think we decided in August, we opened our Palo Alto store in November. It is off to a phenomenal start. It is limited due to COVID restrictions in the state of California in terms of shoppers and consigners. But even with that in mind, 
it's uh, right now equal to the same volume we're doing in Chicago. Now, granted, it's nicer weather here than it is in Chicago right now, but it's really off to a great start. So we've committed to roll out 10 core stores by in the next six months. The next one opening is Brooklyn. Julie, how do you think about inventory management? Um, there's a lot of unique attributes here in terms of single SKU and also um, having inventories in stores versus your DCs and at the same time working to minimize split shipments and maximize speed to the customer. So we've been doing this for a while. So we have a lot of good experience with this and we've been able to most recently drive our shipping costs down. So inventory managed from the beginning, we've always had the store, the item be the focus. So it's available everywhere online in the store, same at the same time. So that whole idea of one and omni-channel, we were there before there was a term for it because we do have only one. So if you only have one, you want to move that item and you don't want it landlocked. You want it to be available on the internet. So we've sort of perfected that over time. Split shipments, we do have inventory on both sides of the coast. So we already have split shipments. Split shipments have not gone up with this at all. Uh, so we feel good about it. It's, mm -hmm. It is more of an inventory management issue, but logistically we've been doing that for a while. Mm -hmm. So it's more just rolling out what we've been doing along with all the checks and balances to make sure that financially it makes sense and that the customer service is still great. Yeah. Julie, you've also moved really quickly uh, with innovation and virtual appointments and consigning virtually. Could you elaborate on that? And what else would you say uh, has really accelerated with innovation amidst the pandemic? Well, a couple of things were underway already. Let me just talk about what was what accelerated. We already had a big uh, technology push to move our op centers into more of a technology-driven op centers, less dependent on humans, uh, although we still employ a lot of people and they're very important, but whatever we could automate there for them were the people doing the work then became QA and added value, not necessarily typing in the description. So right now I think we're up to 80% of all of our photos that were edited before are now done automatically. There's still some human interaction and photo editing, especially with fine jewelry and watches. I think 80% of our copy is written by machines. We've used AI and machine learning to enhance and move our level of authentication in another direction. Even with fine jewelry, specifically diamonds, we've employed some new technology to measure the depth of diamonds that's state-of-the-art, in fact, incredibly unique, and we're expanding that. So all of that work really continued and exceeded our expectations last year. Virtual appointments were a necessity for us. We couldn't, we were prohibited to going into people's homes in, in the state. Plus we didn't want to, we didn't understand COVID enough. So we didn't want to ex uh, expose either our customers, our consigners, our employees to COVID without understanding the right protocols. And as you, as you remember early on, the protocols kept changing. You don't need a mask, you need a mask, you just wash your hands. Anyway, now I think it's pretty well known what one has to do to keep people safe. Many people would prefer just to talk to someone through a FaceTime situation, go over and then us send a van for curbside pickup. So we've actually changed the way we work with consigners. 
what we're finding really interesting is that's working well, but when we add a neighborhood store, they're using both. So they may want to just have a quick virtual appointment and then they do a drop off. Mm -hmm. So both are working hand in hand, which I, you know, one, when you just think about it logically, it makes sense, but uh, we did have to completely pivot our business and uh, we did it fairly quickly. We're still learning how to optimize virtual, but we've come a long way. Yeah, yeah, it's been impressive. Congrats. I wanted to ask you uh, from another perspective, um, we have entrepreneurs and retail students listening as well. What's your advice generally for, for people who are e either of those buckets looking to, to join or, or innovate in the industry? There are so many opportunities for innovation. And I think, you know, especially if you wanted to be an entrepreneur, there's always a white space. And when you're not in a business, you usually see them a lot clearer than when you're running the operating business. So there's always an opportunity to disrupt. And I would say if you move in that direction, you have to make sure that the category you want to disrupt is worth disrupting, meaning it's big enough. Your, your total uh, actualized marketplace, your TAM, is big enough for you to actually create a substantial business. So that I would say, you know, there's always new opportunities. If you think about it at retail as techno and the technology in retail, we're at the infancy stages. So there's phenomenal opportunities there. For retail, I have a bet, and I, I could be wrong, but I don't think I'm gonna be that wrong. When we get through COVID, I think people will wanna normalize. If you can create a really great shopping experience and you're comfortable shopping with your friends and going into a store, and like for instance, in our flagship stores, we have coffee bars. We we serve food. We have we've been doing coffee to go, but we haven't been able to create that in-store environment like we used to have in the flagships. So um, people are picking up coffees and leaving. But if you can create an environment where people want to be in your store, unique experiences. We used to have events all the time. We had entrepreneurs and fashion people and sustainability people and our own experts speak. All of that is gone right now. I think we want to get the stores to be communities again. And there's a tremendous opportunity for anyone with their retail store to create a sense of community. I think people are really going to want it. Uh, uh, people are fed up with <laughs> we're fed yeah. up with the virus. They're fed up with being isolated, communal species. Yeah, the roaring 20s and the pent up. Yeah, there you go. I don't know if we'll go that far, but and it sounds fun right now. <laughs> For sure. So what, what, about, what about students and academics and coursework? Like, what are the skill sets uh, that may be required, you know, for the next generation? Because we're in a very uh, different state with AI um, and, and the merchant. Personally, I actually, beyond the real world has a scholarship program, but I set up three scholarship programs. And I set one up at Purdue, which is my alma mater, one at Parsons for sustainable fashion, and one at just recently at San Francisco Art Institute. And I would say um, what's happened last year, which is sort of what you're asking, but more tangentially, the universities are really cognizant of creating a university that honors diversity and inclusion. And they're looking at their staff, they're looking at the scholarships they're giving out, and it's really been good for them to think differently on that. And I put that as a criteria for my scholarships when I, when I gave out the money. I'm, I don't administer them. I just give them the money with guidelines. But I've seen 
art schools, which you would have thought were more enlightened, you know, they were giving a lot of scholarships to white guys. Now there's an initiative where there's like, no, we're going to get, we're going to set it up. It's going to be a diversity scholarship. Purdue was not helping women in tech go into business. So my scholarship is for women in tech to also get another degree in business. And there were so few, we couldn't give out enough. And Purdue is an engineering school, but still, you know, there were very few crossovers. So I want to encourage crossover and with Parsons, it's sustainability. But let me tell you what binds all these people together. When I asked them, some of them are taking entrepreneurial classes. And I would say, again, this is a gender issue. What I've observed, the women always think they need to learn more. The guys are ready to jump in. So that's not great. We have some ways to go in re-educating women that you can learn on the job. You don't need to know everything when you become an entrepreneur. But what I find is they're really good creative problem solvers, really good creative problem solvers. Um, they're pragmatic. I mean, business is a pragmatic business, but the first is they're thinking creatively, they're pragmatic. There's also a big need for them to put their stamp in the world in a positive way. So the other thing that, um, and it could be self-selected, but what I've seen is people want to do something that actually does not do harm. It's a business that oh, does have a double purpose. It is about a purpose and a profit. They're looking for ways to have a positive impact in the world, not just open another business that for the business sake. If any of that happens, we're in better shape. I would say then the generation coming up is oddly enough, given everything coming at them and all of social media, they're oddly delightfully naive <laughs> and incredibly positive about what they can accomplish and creative. And creative problem solving always is always the high order bet when you're an entrepreneur or a retail executive. And that, and also you really want to understand your customers. So understanding who you're selling to, what you're, what, what you're offering to that customer, doing it better than anybody else and doing it in a way that it delights them. I think people are going to win. I think you're going to see a lot of really cool stuff come mm -hmm. out. Um, the other thing that's happened is and we'll see how the long-term effect of this, but leisure wear and athleisure look like they're here to stay. You know, these, these are no longer like just cool trends. They're trends that are actually now part of the mix and they're part of the mix in a way that actually is going to get cooler and cooler and more interesting. And the other thing that I think people find a lot of opportunity is non-gender clothing. We sell quite a bit of our men's products to women. So thinking of, you know, instead of typing, this is a woman saying, this is a man's, this is just, this is a clothes and they're really cool. I think you're going to see more of that coming out. But look, the next generation coming up has, I would say, nothing but opportunity to reinvent things. Whenever you have some kind of halt, which we did with COVID, which has been horrible in business and in and health, new things always come out. And the people that are hungry, that want to put their stamp in the world will come up with new ways and it's really going to be exciting. Yeah, gender fluidity and um, thinking about inclusiveness and also personal style. Those are big topics for us. And, you know, Callan believes as a firm that diversity will and can and should drive performance um, given the need for uh, retail and others and, and this intellectual capital that to really reflect uh, clients as well as creativity. So 
I, I totally um, understand where you're coming from. Would love your thoughts, Julian. What's exciting to you ahead? Uh, you've done a great job navigating this environment. What really excites you most? Look, I, I often say this, but we're such a baby company. We have such a long way to go. So um, I think this year is going to be another a year of excitement, possibly not like last year where it was negative excitement, but um, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Our core stores are so promising. So I think we can deliver a really great experience and help drive the business. And you know, we always have international in our crosshair. So uh, we want to get through COVID before we lay down the plans, but that's, uh, you know, it's not in the short term, but it's going to be within the near term that we'll go through that kind of expansion. But I have to say everything in front of us looks really good. It's been a it last year was a hard year. Our high touch business combined with, especially in California for shutdowns, put a really temporary huge damper on the business, which caused us to innovate in ways that now we have new ways to work. So ultimately what we learned in 2020 is gonna serve us going forward. So I'm looking forward to more growth, more fun. It is darn fun. This is a great business. It's so much fun. Well, Julie, thanks for spending so much time with us on a range of exciting topics. Change yields opportunity, and you're a key leader in a growing and important industry, and also a, a, a change maker with respect to diversity and inclusion. So thanks for being with us now. Oh, thanks so much, Oliver. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.